Pastor Ethan this morning told me that the first thing we should have said this morning was, guys, I haven't seen you since last year. <laughs> oh, that cheesy joke was brought to you by Pastor Ethan Elka right there. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so, so very much. Uh, it is a new year, and uh, it, it's a... I mean, I just love, I've been writing about it a little bit in my devotionals. I do, I do love a fresh season. I, I love looking ahead and, and thinking about what could be. Um, this is always a tough one. September feels a little easier. I know that's the beginning of that season. feels like the beginning of, of a year. Uh, but there's, there's, so much, there's so much to look forward to. And there is, there's a lot of emotions. Because maybe, maybe 2023 wasn't a great year for you. Maybe it was. And so we, we kind of take this time, and I hope you're doing this, you take this time to sort of pause and say, okay, Lord, I, I thank you for what you've brought me through or brought me to or whatever it is that your story is from this last season and looking ahead and saying, okay, now where would you like to take me? Because that's what I want more than anything in my life. And so we get into a new series uh, we are, we're, I'm going to explain it in just a second here, but we're calling it This Is The Way. Does anybody already know what that reference is? Okay, no, okay, good. Well, this might, this might miss you. This will be special for me then. That's fine. It's no problem. If you're a Star Wars fan uh, and you have ever watched The Mandalorian, okay, there it is, right? Okay. Uh, you'll know that Mandalorians have a very strict code of uh, traditions and ideals that they have to uphold or there are serious consequences for the Mandalorians. Uh, and this includes, which is like, like I watched through the series when it first came out, and it's, this, this part freaks me out. They can never take their helmet off in front of another person. I want you to think how claustrophobic that would be. <laughs> I know that they're used to it or whatever. I, I just, I can't, I don't know, like, do you have to like eat in a closet? Like, I don't understand, I don't, there's so, I have so many questions, but anyway, they're not allowed to take their helmets off in front of others. That's kind of one of the, the big ones. Um, and so, but when, when they, as a group, when they are talking to another Mandalorian, when they are making decisions or they are affirming something that's going on, uh, affirming something that they believe in, they will say to one another, this is the way. Yeah, okay. <laughs> God, glad you guys are with me. Um, and what's interesting about this phrase is that, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, in Acts chapter 9, there is a new phrase that appears to describe people who believe in Jesus. And they are called the way. It's like, and the people of the way was the way where they were describing those early Christians. We're not totally sure where it comes from. There's no description of it. Like the, the writer of, of the book of Acts, Luke, uh, he uses this in his narrative they, um, in, in Acts 9 for the first time, but then a few other times in the book of Acts, and he just refers to them as the way without an explanation. And so perhaps it's from Jesus' statement that we read in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's probably where it came from. It would make sense. So to follow Jesus is to be part of the uppercase way. Isn't that cool? Did you know that? Um, and so naturally, because that's how my brain works, as soon as I watched The Mandalorian, I couldn't hear the one without hearing the other. Uh, it's so, because I, I think it's really, I think it's cool how this phrase is used, because it's important to know who you are. It's important, important to know uh, what you believe, what matters, and what is worth giving your life for. And if the Mandalorians reiterate this commitment to their code over and over again by using this phrase, I wonder 
what would those things be? What would those ideals and standards and codes of ethics be for the group that was originally called the way? And I guess um, 2,000 or so years later, we could continue to call ourselves that today. So I have called this series, This is the Way, to give us a chance um, in the month of January to learn what the church is all about and what it means to follow Jesus. And so you'll see there are four Sundays in January. There are four messages coming up. There are four core components of faith that we are going to talk about this month. And truthfully, I could have landed on a lot of different passages of Scripture to find these core things. These aren't the only things that matter. They're just the ones we're going to have time to land on in the month of January. And they are found all over Scripture. Um, but I decided to use the letter of First Peter as our guide through January because I was so struck by how beautiful the instruction was. We were, uh, when we were there in the fall at some point during our Bible in a Year reading plan, which, sidebar... <laughs> If you want to read the Bible through this year, you're welcome to continue to join our reading plan. You're only seven days behind, which is super easy. You could just do two days at a time, be caught up by next Sunday. Do you know what I'm saying? So if you've ever wanted to read through the Bible, we are, again, reading through the Bible together. There's a bunch of us on the reading plan in version. You can join any time. And there's instructions for that on our social media. And I sent them out in an email earlier this week. And, and if you need verbal instructions, Pastor Aaron will help you this morning before you leave church. She's very good. She's been doing it all week, adding people to the plan. So version changed how they did plans. And so we've had a, a few technical things that we've had to work through. But we're, we're off. Uh, okay, so sidebar. This is what happened with sidebar. Now I don't know where I am. But, oh, yes, because in First Peter, we were reading through First Peter uh, in the fall, uh, late fall. And I was just, like, struck by how beautiful it was and how it had so many of these components uh, woven throughout the letter in Peter's instruction to the early church. So I was, I, we're going we're gonna to read through it because I don't, we haven't been in 1 Peter for a while. So uh, Peter's writing, though, the way Peter writes is sort of all over the map in his letter, if you read it from beginning to end. Um, it says in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, you can even go there in your Bible right now. It would be great. First uh, Peter chapter 1. He says that he is writing to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces. So this would be Christians uh, in the provinces of Asia Minor uh, who had been scattered all over, almost certainly because of persecution. So they were persecuted and they had to scatter. And as they scattered, they started to um, evangelize and plant churches and, and all of that kind of thing. So, so the gospel was being spread probably and primarily through persecution. And that's going to come up a lot in this letter. And Peter's writing style is a little hard to follow, uh, only in that it's not, you can tell it's not Paul, for example, who's writing the letter, who's a little more succinct. He very, very long run-on sentences when you read what Paul's writing, but, uh, but it's, it's more thematic in how it runs through a train of thought. But Peter's a little all over the place, sort of weaves in and out of topics, and he encourages the reader, and then he tells them, first he gives them an encouragement, then he tells them what the foundation, the reason for his encouragement is, why he feels so solid about encouraging them, exhorting them to do something or uh, to, to, to feel a certain way. And then he takes a little bit of a rabbit trail to cover other important ideas, and then he comes back to it again. And so you sort of get this weaving effect through his writing. It's, it's nice. And this is why we won't, in January, be reading this through from 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1, all the way through to the end of the letter. Um, because instead, it would be more helpful for us, I think, we're going to take a 10,000-foot view uh, and take these four topics and just crane out <laughs> where he weaves these, these themes in and out of his letter to the persecuted and scattered church. 
Although, I, if you get a chance, I would really encourage you, read the letter of 1 Peter. It's not very long from beginning to end because it's great to get, like, the full view of it. And then we'll come, we'll come in on Sundays together and pull out some themes. So Peter knows um, from his own biblical heritage, growing up as a Jewish kid, he would have been taught the scriptures. He also, of course, was uh, one of the original 12 disciples, and so he knew the teachings of Jesus so intimately well. He knows from those two things how to ground his encouragement for the church, what he wants to say to the church, how he wants to exhort the church, his instructions. Um, he knows how to how ground all of those things in the character and the actions of God. And this is exactly what he does all the way through this letter. And we're going to call this this morning uh, theological ethics. So ethics are the moral principles that govern your behavior. But they aren't based on you. They're not just your ethics. This is theological ethics, meaning they are ethics that are based on the character and nature of God. And this is what you're really grabbing in this, uh, in this section of what uh, Peter is writing to the, the churches. Today's passage, uh, there are four main or ethical instructions, theological ethical instructions, and they are to hope, in verse 13, to be holy in verse four, verses 14 to 16, to fear God in verses 17 to 21, and to love deeply in 22 into the second chapter of verse 3. And he's basically saying this is the way for the people of the way. These are the theological ethics that should be grounding your life. So let's read it together, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to skip that first section. Um, Pastor Aaron's going to come back to it. Uh, in a couple of weeks. And let's read uh, 113 into the, uh, into the beginning of chapter 2. Peter writes this, Be holy. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who calls you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it, is, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. But the grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it, you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's a beautiful letter, isn't it? He says, he says, listen, I want you to 
Set your hope. But he says, don't just set your hope. He says, do it with minds that are alert and fully sober. And the, the Greek words here really mean like to get yourself, literally get yourself ready for action. Um, like uh, uh, the, the, the picture here is of a man in that culture uh, who was wearing a long cloak and would take his outer cloak and tuck it into his belt because you don't want to trip over it uh, when you're running. Like you're, when you have to be... Uh, quickly going somewhere. You want to tuck that cloak into that belt so that it doesn't trip you up as you go. So literally, like, you are ready for action. That's the picture that's being painted here. Make sure your mind is alert and fully sober, like you are ready for anything so that you can run. No, he says, so that you can hope in the right thing. So that you're ready to not be distracted and run after things that don't matter, but so that you are completely ready to set your hope on what is real. He says, be holy. Because you have been adopted into God's family. You have a different father now. You are, it says, a child of obedience. Children, are there any children in the room? Mm, please let this be your title. I'm a child of obedience. This is what Peter says that we are as the church. We have now become children of obedience because we don't conform anymore to the evil desires that we had before we knew Christ. That's verse 14. And this, of course, uh, reminds me so much of what, what Paul says to the church in Rome in Romans 12 too, when he says, don't conform to the pattern of the world. Very similar in its, its phrasing here. We have a special relationship with God. We are his chosen children. We are now children of obedience because of what he's done for us. And so he's saying, because of that, our lives should reflect him. Um, in every way, we should be becoming like him in holiness. He is holy, which means perfect and set apart. He says, be holy, be set apart, be different, be, be other. And you can be because you are now children of a new father. It's possible for you because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And because you now have a right standing with God through him. He says... Live out your time in reverent fear, verse 17. This is a hard phrase for us in English because fear doesn't usually uh, sit well with us. We don't want to be afraid of God. That's not what this means. It means that knowing that God judges with absolute fairness should drive us to a healthy awe and fear of him. A reverence is more what that means. It's like knowing he is perfect in all of his ways. His judgments are perfect. He can look at your life today and know the inside from the out. He knows every thought and action. It doesn't matter what you've said to others or you've even told yourself about the motivations of your heart. He knows your heart. And when you stand before him one day, you will be without excuse. And so knowing that is not to put fear in your heart. Knowing that is just to keep you in a place where you say, this is not, uh, this is not a God that I'm going to try to lie to, that I'm going to be fake with. He says, no, no. Uh, come in, and in awe and reverence come before God. Understand who he is. That's the, that, that's the call here. His beautiful and holy love check us. He checks our thoughts and checks our actions. And like I said, it's not dread. It's not anxiety about thinking about God. It's a healthy response of a child of God. A sign of spiritual health. A sign of gratitude when you, are, um, you consider God awesome. And you are, you, you are reverent when you come before him. 
Peter also says to love one another deeply, verse 22. Peter wants the, the churches to be filled with people who love one another deeply from the heart. Because this is the natural result of being made holy by God's grace. When you have received uh, the, the amount of grace and love and compassion and forgiveness that we have received as children of God through what Christ has done, we should have every reason to pour that out into every relationship we can find around us, to love one another so well, deeply from the heart. We do this because um, we are in awe of the love we have found and the new life we have found in Christ. And so he says, that should just be pouring out of your lives so naturally when you really understand what Jesus has done for you. So these are the, the four uh, theological, ethical uh, things that he's asking from the church in this beginning of this letter. And all of it sets the stage for the first value that we're going to talk about here that, uh, it, for people of the way, which is us, and that is worship. The way you live your life is worship. Timothy Keller says it like this, the word worship is from the Old English worth-ship, the ascribing of highest worth. Whatever you value or love the most, whatever is your greatest source of significance and security, you are worshiping in your heart. Worship in church is just an expression of that. So here Peter is giving us an outline of a life of worship to God through these core theological ethics. If your hope is in Christ, if you pursue holiness through obeying his commands, if you humbly receive his forgiveness, if you live in reverence and awe of who he is and you love others out of the love you have received, your life is an act of worship to God. And it's not uh, stated here, it's unstated but implied in this, that, that if you hope for things that are only in this life, if you rebel against God's instruction and not be and be a child of disobedience, if you treat him flippantly or without regard or you fail to love well or you only love yourself, you are worshiping many things indeed, but not God. Your life is an act of worship. It doesn't matter who you're worshiping, it's still an act of worship and the call here is to be careful that your life is worshiping God the only one who is truly worth it, who deserves that kind of worth in our life. And so we take these ethical foundations and, and we do something with them. It's like he's saying, listen, um, if, this, if this is true, if this is who God is, if this is what we are called to do, then that, this is what we are going to do with it. So let's continue to read First Peter. We uh, left off. Chapter 2, verse 3. Let's pick up this next section here, uh, verses 4 to 10, called the living stone and a chosen people. It says this. As you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who, puts tr who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also 
what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A better translation of verse 5 might be, um, like living stones, build yourselves into a spiritual house. It says we are being built, but the, the, the language here is actually much closer to build yourselves. Remember we were getting, we had that, we're ready for action, we're ready to do the thing. Build yourselves into a spiritual health. It's not something that's happening to you, it's something that you are actively playing a part in. It's a choice to decide to unify ourselves under and with Christ. And I've done some teaching on Jesus as the cornerstone in the last several months. I won't go over all of that stone the builders rejected piece, but if you're curious about that, um, I'm happy to chat with you about it, or you can go back to some of those older messages. Uh, we don't have time for all of that today. But the, the point being that uh, we are building ourselves into a spiritual house, and the way that we are doing that is by making sure that we are laying a foundation or uh, adding our piece um, that, to the perfect cornerstone, the, the solid rock, that the one that is perfect in every way so that what we build is worthwhile. It's not going to fall apart. It's not going to crumble. It's going to last forever because Jesus is the cornerstone of what we are building. And here is what us, active living stones, and here's the metaphor, of course, Here's what we are doing in this spiritual house. We are offering spiritual sacrifices, verse 5 says. So what are these? What does it mean to be a living stone who offers spiritual sacrifices? This is probably not language you use every day around the water cooler at work. So what does it mean? Uh, what is he trying to tell us to do? And also when I think about this, it, what can I possibly do? Like I know myself pretty well. What can I possibly give the God of the universe as a sacrifice that he would accept? I am not so very much. I am flawed and I am broken. And when I consider how great is our God, I just, I know I, I, I have so little to offer him. So what on earth can, can me and you as living stones, can we offer this great God? What kind of spiritual sacrifice can we give? Peter doesn't actually describe it further. He just sort of lays that down there. But uh, he likely means any and all of the commands that he's already been discussing, the, these, these ethics that he's calling us to live by. He's probably also just generally referring to the commands of Christ, the things that Jesus taught us. He's like, um, offer these spiritual sacrifices. Do the things that you have been called to do that you know please God. The things that you have been taught along the way, the things that the Holy Spirit continues to reveal to you, do those things. Offer those things as spiritual sacrifices, as a living stone in this house that you are being built into. So as I trust Jesus with my life, what I offer him then becomes acceptable. I am not acceptable on my own. I can't forgive my own sin. I can't do enough to make up for it. But what I offer to him becomes acceptable because Jesus did the work to make me righteous. I can receive that from him, the forgiveness from him. And so the sacrifice that I make becomes acceptable, becomes worthy, becomes holy because Jesus gives me those things. He makes me those things. 
He offers me those things. And so I, I receive that. And so then my life that I then give to him as I obey these things and I, and I obey his commands, these things become acceptable sacrifices to him because of what Jesus has done, because I can receive um, newness and wholeness and forgiveness. Of course, Romans 12, 1, we read, we read Romans 12, 2 already, or I mentioned it, uh, it comes to mind immediately here. Where Paul says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that he has done for us, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So let's connect all of these ideas together quickly here. We are told that we are living stones. And that our job as living stones is to build ourselves into a spiritual house and offer spiritual sacrifices, meaning that we are obeying the commands of Christ and offering our whole lives as true and proper worship, our whole selves to worship as God. And so if we keep simplifying all of this down, what does it mean then? This is the question I wanted to answer. We're going to be answering and talking about all through the month of January. What does it mean to follow Jesus and be a part of his church? What are the core components? And the first one here to me is that, I mean, Peter takes a little bit of a roundabout way to get there, but this is what he says. You are a worshiper. To follow Jesus and to be a part of his church means that you are a worshiper. Or as I have titled this message, recognizing that in all things, he is first. He is first. That the song of my life, however that is sung in conversation and in action and an actual song, that, that the song of my life is this, he is first. It's not me, it's not you. It's not your opinion of me or vice versa. He is first. Verse 9 says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The purpose of the church is to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. We've been taught by our culture that uh, we're supposed to think of our faith only as individuals. We think about our individual choice to follow Christ, which it actually, of course, is. No one can do that for you. You can't do that for someone else. But Peter is not describing individual Christians here as a chosen people or a royal priesthood, though we all make up that group. He is talking about the state and the function of the church, that together we are a chosen people. Together we are a royal priesthood. And the individual person who is in this royal priesthood, who is in this chosen people, gets the benefits, of course, of what that means individually. You, you receive those blessings. The individual mirrors that larger body. The individual has to make choices that make sense so that we can enjoy the privileges and access to God that we have. But don't ever forget when you're reading scripture that we are intended always, this is intended always to happen with us as a group. Each one of us has to add our piece for that to make sense, but we are supposed to be doing it together. And there's so much about these descriptions here by Peter. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession that could be unpacked. The simplest thing I can say about these big phrases is that they are references 
to being uh, chosen by God and included in his family. And that used to only be the Jews who were his people. These are references like that were used of, the, of those people. But now he's saying we are all included in this family, every one of us. And I don't know about you, but I am not royal and I am not a priest. I don't, those, those things, like those references, those are things that were granted in the Old Testament by the family that you were born into. Royal bloodline. Or, or for the priest, you had to be in the tribe of Levi. You had to be able to prove that you were in that tribe if you wanted to serve in that way. And you were called to serve in that way. But this scripture says that we are now both. We are, we are royal and we are priests because of the family we have now been reborn into. Which is a pretty incredible thing. You can call me Princess Tracy. That's cool. That's, that's all right. Call each other. You always do like brother and sister. Maybe we should just try like using our royal titles. Just see how it feels for a little while. And Peter tells this scattered and persecuted first century church, these members of the way, that they were made to worship and that they have every reason to be worshipers. We're going to talk next week about how hard that would have been. But for now, he's giving them this instruction. And in case they just, in case they miss it, I love how he ends this kind of, kind of thought in this section, in case we didn't get it, that we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation and, and chosen in special possession. He says, once you were not a people and once you had not received mercy. But now, but now, like look at your life now because of Christ. So we go back to the instruction to build ourselves into a spiritual house that offers spiritual sacrifices and that we're supposed to be praising the one who has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, this is Colossians 1, and, and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves through whom we have forgiveness, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what does it mean to make God first? What does it mean that he is first? What does it mean to worship him? What does it mean to offer spiritual sacrifices? What does this actually look like in your actual real life? Great question. Thank you for asking me. First of all, it's a very simple phrase, but man, does it ever cover a lot. It's that you need to live your life as worship. Consider your whole life as worship. I love how uh, we talked about, I, I read from the NIV, Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2. Here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrases that in the message. He says it like this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. That's what a life of worship looks like. Do I truly believe in my life that he is first? That he deserves that place of honor in my life? Because if I do, it will show up everywhere in my life. Do my finances worship God? Do my relationships honor God? Do my words honor God? Does my work honor God? Does every part of my life 
Do I just live with the assumption that God is with me, that the Holy Spirit is empowering me, and that he, is, he, is, he can see and is watching everything I do? If I live in that way and I think he is worth all of my worship, he's worth all of my life, he really has transformed me, does my life reflect that in every way? I'm not talking about perfection. I know we're not ever going to get there. Not on this side of eternity. I'm talking about posturing our hearts and considering him first. That he really is the first, has first place in our lives. The fact that in all of these areas, the ones I mentioned and, and more, in every area of your life that you can answer yes. Yes, my life is an act of worship. I consider God first. Man, that's a big calling, church. I recognize that. It's a big calling, and yet let me say to you, it's not meant to be oppressive. It's not meant to be heavy. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. What he's asking you is to trust him with your life and let him bless you in that obedience. And you'll find a life like no other. But when you try and serve two masters, you are going to be torn and conflicted. Maybe 2024 is the year where you decide, I'm all in. I'm not going to keep one foot in this camp and I'm one foot in this camp. I'm just going to go all in. Your life, your whole life is an act of worship. The second thing is this. I know every time I wear these earrings, it happens, and yet I wear them anyway because they match my outfit and I was happy about it, okay? That is what it is. <laughs> well, it's like... The second way that we do this is just simply what the scripture says, give your praise to God every day. This sounds really simple. It's actually harder to do than it sounds. But absolutely what we are called to do as his church. Uh, verse 9 says we are to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. If that is true, that you have been called out of darkness and into his wonderful light, is there anything else we could possibly do but declare his praises every day? I mean, if we really grasp that every morning when we wake up. And listen, praise need, needs to be seen or heard to be praised. It's a little different than worship. You may think something great. Maybe the person sitting beside you looks fantastic today and all you've done is think about it in your mind. If you don't say that to them, it's not praise. It's just a thought that you had. You understand the difference? Praise has to be seen or heard, and that's what we're being called to do here. The Bible is full of commands for us to pray. This is just one of them. There are so many of them that tell us to praise the Lord. When you love someone, when you're grateful, when you have been surprised by joy of some kind, you say it, you tell someone, you can't help it, and that's what we're called to do every day, to give our praise to God. I'm not saying you have to do it in front of others, though that would be awesome, but in, in some verbal way, in some obvious way, giving your praise to God every day. And part of that is the way you live your life. There's, a, there's praise in that as well. Your gratitude for being drawn in as God's special possession should be seen and heard and felt in your life, church. How are people going to know how good your God is unless you tell them? And so... We do these simple things. We live our lives as worship, thinking about every part of our life as, as him first. And we give our praise to God every day. That's what Peter tells the church to do. 
It's what he's telling us to do. It's what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do. So for this morning, this is the way. This is the way. And we are going to do that together now. We are going to declare his praises together. And we are going to recenter ourselves in the fact that he is first. And that our lives are, are what they are because of who he is. And we're going to gather around this communion table. I'm going to invite uh, Rob to come back. We take a few moments around this table to recenter our focus and recenter our thinking. To remember that all we have and this life that we've been given, the very breath in our lungs, has been given to us as a gift from the Lord. And it's a bit of an effort. I, I, I appreciate that. It's a bit of an effort to every day remind yourself that you are not alone, that you have, have been bought with a price, that you are God's special possession and all of these things. But it is worth getting into the habit of praise because that's exactly what it will be. Everything you see, every time you, you go to spend money, every time you, you're in a, you think about a relationship or a person, every time uh, you look at your calendar, every time you start to think, God, thank you for these people. Thank you for these resources. Thank you for all that you've done for me. How can I honor you with these things? Letting these become habits in your life. And so in a, we're just going to, uh, Rob, Rob's going to lead us and actually I think Lenore's going to lead us, but however that works, it doesn't matter. Uh, as, as they lead us this morning, um, if you're new with us today, uh, what we do is we come up and, and take the emblems uh, from the servers who are going to come in just a few moments. And you can grab them and then go back to your seats and just hold on to them. The, the bread uh, is in the second cup underneath the juice. It's all together in one little package for you. You can grab uh, that, take it back to your seat, and we're going to receive these emblems together as we reflect in Scripture. So let's stand together. Let's prepare our hearts. And when the servers are ready, I'll call the, the front rows to start. And let's worship. Let's, let's praise him. Let's consider what we've been called to together as we are led in worship this morning.